almost done the first half of the larger book of Samuel, cut into kind of a part one and part two, and things are really beginning to accelerate and move towards a um, powerful end, and kind of a cliffhanger, actually, um, in in a few weeks. But as we move into chapter 29, and as you situate yourself there in your Bible or it's on the sermon notes, uh, I want to review where we are in the story. So chapter 27, David had come to a place of deep weariness. He has spent years, maybe up to a decade, running from King Saul and his vengeful jealousy. And that weariness has turned David inward. He stopped seeking God. He stopped listening to God, stopped praying. He starts listening to himself, begins to turn inward and he's isolated himself, both spiritually from God, but also emotionally and relationally from a lot of other people. He has fallen into the trap that Israel had for generations before of doing what seemed right in his own eyes, relying on his own strategies. And, you know, this is something that is a reality uh, for for many people, and I want to speak to that reality of slowly emotionally isolating ourselves, relationally isolating ourselves, spiritually isolating ourselves as we get older, because that's one pattern and particular temptation I see in my own life and I see in the life of people that I pastor. But as we get older, as we move through different experiences, we can begin to forget our need for God and then forgetting becomes looking around and saying like, oh, I think things are actually okay. And we begin relying on our own Um, experience and strategies. Now, the source of that isolation could look very different depending on, again, stage of life and what you've experienced. It can come from weariness like David. It can come from disappointment with God or with how life has turned out. So we intentionally begin to give God the cold shoulder. It can come from grief or loss. Uh, For some, it's just busyness and responsibilities. Um, We can be tempted to think, I don't really have time to seriously seek God. I I just have a lot of good and important responsibilities that fill up my daily planner and weekly calendar and the years kind of tick over. But it can also come from success. I've seen people isolate themselves because they gain a critical mass of experience and God's blessing. And for different reasons, they sort of say, oh God, I'll take it from here. Like they begin being confident in their own ability to orchestrate and carry their life. And, and they mistake being independent spiritually and emotionally and maybe even relationally with spiritual maturity, which is about cultivating a continual dependence upon God and also recognizing no matter how old we are, and maybe this is especially true for the men who are 40 plus in our community, we actually need other friendships and other relationships in our lives. And this chapter in David's life is a warning that when we isolate ourselves from God and other people um, and begin to build life around what seems right in our own eyes, it almost always kind of devolves into a slow spiral downward. So David, in his weariness, flees the region controlled by the Philistines. It's a move that's made without prayer, uh, but the king of the Philistines, King Achish, gives David and his men Ziklag, and he enjoys 16 months of refuge from Saul's pursuit. But he spends that time surviving through a mixture of self-serving violence and deception. He pretends that he's serving the Philistine king, but he's really committing violent raids against tribes that are loyal to the Philistines. 
to cover his tracks. He has all, all the men and women killed so that no word gets back that David is actually betraying Achish. And what happens is Achish says, David, you're amazing. You've served me so well. I want to elevate you to the status of my personal bodyguard. And um, sorry, let me back up. I skipped over something here. So he professes to serve Achish, but he actually commits raids against those loyal to the Philistine. Um, the Bible frames this chapter as a very dark period in David's life. And it's there to show us just how far David has separated himself, not just from the land of Israel geographically, but from God. He's a, he's a, he's a huge spiritual distance away from the young Israelite uh, teen who took on the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, and won. But he can't run from God forever, and so David's choices catches up with him. Achish is like, hey, I want to promote you. I want you to be my bodyguard. We're going to go to war against Israel and I want you to serve in a high-ranking position in my military. And now David is caught between a rock and a hard place. He can't fight against Israel. He's not going to be able to betray Achish without having him and his men destroyed because he's like right in the middle of enemy territory. And so he's trapped. And we kind of end chapter 27 on this cliffhanger of something's got to give. And then in 28, we get Saul's perspective. It's the camera switch, the scene shift to Saul, who's desperate. God has shut the door on Saul and his prayers because Saul has been in this continual state of rebellion against God. And Saul wants to know what he should do for the battle. And heaven is silent. Saul goes to a, a witch or a medium at Endor, tries to consult the dead. God, as a judgment, brings the spirit of Samuel before Saul and basically says, um, you're going to die tomorrow, Saul. Your sons are going to die tomorrow in the battle, and Israel's going to be handed over to the Philistines. So we're seeing in, verse, in sorry, chapters 27 and 28, both of these kings, the, the existing established king Saul, but the king to be David, they're actually both on very similar dark paths. It's a, it's a huge low point for them. And it might be hard for us, but if you're hearing this story for the first time, as the final chapters come to a close on 1 Samuel, it's actually kind of depressing because you're like, is there anybody who can faithfully lead Israel? Like, is anyone able to do it? Is there anyone who can actually serve and lead in a way that is godly? Or are we just fated to sort of cycle through bad leader after bad leader. And the best that we can hope for is just a leader who's not as corrupt, not as wicked, not as godless as the one before. So let's move into chapter 29. And as this chapter opens, scene change, we pivot back to David. And this is probably something that happened before, chronologically before Saul goes to the witch of Endor or, or more or less kind of the same time frame. Verse 1 says the Philistines are gathering their forces at Aphek. And if you go to the map here, AJ, do you want to turn me down again a little bit? I just feel like I'm getting a bit of feedback, and I want to be able to yell later. Um, so here's, here's the territory, and um, Aphek is to the, uh, sorry, the Philistines are gathering in Aphek, and the Israelites are gathering in Jezreel. And what's important to note here is that the scripture says, all of the forces of the Philistines are being gathered. So this isn't like a skirmish. This is Achish saying, I've really had enough of dealing with these Israelites. I'm bringing all my forces to bear. We're going full-on offensive assault. 
the goal of which, once we eliminate the Israelite army north, will just sweep down and commit genocide all the way down and then be done with the Israelites forever. David and his men are in the rear guard protecting Achish. Verse 3 tells us the commanders of the Philistines aren't really happy about this relationship because they don't trust David and the other uh, Hebrews. Achish was like, he's awesome. And they're kind of like, why are we placing Hebrews right beside our most valuable asset? One betrayal and this whole thing falls apart. In verse 4, they demand that David be sent back to Ziklag because they see an obvious opportunity for David to kill Achish and then regain Saul's favor. They say to the king, they say, remember, this is David. This is the guy who they wrote those songs about. Saul has slain his, ten, his thousands, David his ten thousands. They remember this top 40 hit that is still in the memory of the Philistines. And remember, if you're an Israelite, that song is about inspiration. Look what God has done through Saul, but even more so through David. But if you're a Philistine, that song on repeat in your mind and in your heart has been an ongoing source of resentment. And that is stoked vengeance because it's a song about how you have been humiliated. And they're like, and now we're putting that David right beside our king? No, no, send him back. We're not okay with this. So in verses 6 to 8, Achish caves. He says to David, listen, I trust you completely, but you need to turn back. You can't join me in the battle. And actually in verse, verse 6, Achish says, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable. And I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you. Now again, don't read over that too quickly, because what Achish is saying to David is, these guys don't trust you? I do. You have been so faithful to me and you fit in so well from the first day that you came to now. And that is a not so subtle, maybe it's subtle to us if we don't have kind of ears to hear it. That's a very condemnatory statement from Achish to David. The fact that a pagan, violent, genocidal, ruthless leader like Achish finds no fault with David that is not a good look for David. That means David has been living among the Philistines for 16 months in a way that the leader of the Philistines says he fits right in. He must have had a total change of heart because he's nothing but an asset to us. Our culture, our worldview, how we do things around here, David is an outstanding example to the rest of my men. And there's a little discipleship prick here that I want, to, I want all of us to feel. And that is, if our commitment to God never creates any friction with the culture around us, if it never creates any friction with anyone in your life, then you are, you're just not serving God faithfully. You just can't be. If you fit in with the culture and the dominant worldview, the zeitgeist of the age, so perfectly that everyone around you sees you as just one of them, then I think that's time for a spiritual gut check. Christians should not be looking for a fight. We shouldn't be looking for conflict. We should not be uh, proactively antagonistic. 
or reflexive to whatever's happening in the culture, we just stand against it. But living for God will at times mean being an enemy to the culture's values and priorities. And so if you've never, if you've never found yourself questioning things around you, resisting them, rejecting them, evaluating them, then I'm not sure in what sense it makes sense to say of yourself, Jesus is my Lord and I'm seeking to serve him. If functionally in every other way we're just reflexively adopting whatever the loudest voices in the culture are inviting us into. There are often many aspects of culture that Christians should embrace because they're good, they're constructive, they overlap with uh, biblical priorities, priorities for Christians. But in every age, there are also going to be things that we cannot celebrate, that we cannot advance, that we cannot support, that a commitment to Jesus will demand that we resist and reject, even if it's just quietly saying, no, thank you, I will not participate in that. Again, it doesn't have to be overtly contentious. But when we make that stand, however graciously we do, it will create tension points in our relationships. It's going to create tension points with how we spend our money. It's going to create tension points in our workplaces, in our, uh, on our sports teams, in our schools. The Apostle James calls out an early group of Christians who were kind of living like David or wondering if they could live like David. Like, we're saved, we're going to heaven. So now do we just sort of like live amongst the Romans and just kind of like live like Romans? Like Jesus has saved our soul, but like Monday through Saturday, we kind of live how we want. We live based on how, what seems right in our own eyes. And James is like, no. He says, don't you understand that friendship with the world means enmity with God? If you choose to be a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. That's important to understand what is being said here and what is not being said. You don't misunderstand this verse or what I'm saying. Christians are not reflexively anti-everything in the culture, but the worldly aspects of the culture. The aspects of the culture that are bent on a trajectory where there's no reference to God and are either indifferent to God, resistant to God, or literally anti-God, moving in an opposite direction. Again, there's going to be things that we can affirm in our workplaces and in our culture and different cultural uh, pursuits. But if we are a friend with the world, meaning no matter what is happening, we're just like, that's awesome, it's amazing, no problem. If we're cozying up in every regard to what we see happening around us, how we use social media, how we use the internet, how we use our money, then we're actually putting ourselves in a place where we are indirectly at least or directly um, standing against the purposes of God in our life. Discipleship to Jesus, especially in the areas of money and how we use our bodies and sexuality and power, that will cause us to have to evaluate how we use those things differently. And at some important points, it will just inevitably cause us to say, even though everyone around me is saying, this is fine, this is okay, this is not okay in terms of my walk with God. And it's gonna create friction. But what we see here in David's life is that whether his faith was completely dead or it was stuffed down so deep that it had no meaningful expression, 
a violent pagan leader can look at his life and look at him and say, awesome, he's one of us, this is great, I trust him. Verse eight, David says, what have I done? What have you found against your servant from the day that I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord and King? This is really interesting because David is saying, it's, it's hard to know whether, and the text is vague, is David actually upset that he can't go and fight for the Philistines? Is he upset because he thinks, I was going to go into battle and then betray Achish during the battle, and now I can't do that, so he's feigning, oh, I'd really like to fight against the enemies of my lord and king, because he doesn't qualify who his lord and king is. Is that God? Is he going to fight for his lord God and against the enemies of God, or is it Achish, or is it Saul? The text is intentionally vague, and it's there. It's vague for a reason, because maybe David isn't even sure at this point. Maybe there is no plan for David. He's just seeing how each uh, plank of the track gets laid out and is going to make, to this point, I think what would be an educated guess, a self-serving decision based on how things play out. It's hard to believe David would betray his own people, but 27, the, chapter, the 27th chapter has shown us that nothing is sort of implausible for David at this point because he really has fallen so far from God. So Achish answers, I know that you have been pleasing in my eyes as, a, as, as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, these Philistine commanders have said, you must not go with us in the battle. So get up early along with your master servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning, then to go back to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So it's a pretty short chapter, and maybe at first pass, it's not um, imminently obvious what the main takeaway of this passage is, but man, it's, it's incredibly important. To me, this chapter is all about how God is our rescue. That's one of the themes of Israel. It's one of the themes in the, in, in the Psalms, gets carried over into the New Testament, God is our rescue. Remember the context. David has placed himself in an absolutely impossible situation. He is literally caught between a rock and a hard place. There, his, he's come to the end of his own strategies, and now he is stuck. Enemies on his right, enemies on his left. From a human point of view, all of his options end in tragedy at best, death at worst. But then we see God working providentially through these Philistine commanders. And they're like, I don't want David around here. And so even though God isn't mentioned, we're supposed to sense, oh, God has done something. He's turned their attention to the fact that David shouldn't be here. And God, in his providential power, works through a group of Philistine commanders to exit David from the scene and because of that, rescue David, delivering David from imminent death and destruction. I don't know if you have ever been in a situation of your own making where you have painted yourself into a corner. And through a series of bad decisions, there are now, looking ahead, no good options. And you have maybe spent sleepless nights, 
weeks, maybe months, trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this? Your strategies and your plans and your purposes and your scheming, you haven't been able to shuffle the deck in a way that you're like, oh, it could, it could work out this way. Every option seems like bad or worse. And then, out of the blue, unbidden, God saves you. If you have had an experience like this, David's story will have special meaning for you. But even if you've never had an experience like that, there's still an incredibly powerful truth here that points to God's saving grace for all of us. One that I believe, even though it's not credited to this time of life, I I like to think that David had this situation in mind when he looked back on his life and he writes Psalm 103. He writes this, he says, God does not treat us as our sins deserve. God does not pay us according to our iniquities. See, in this story, David has painted himself into a corner and God owes David nothing. God could have said, you made this bed. Get yourself out of it, David. You abandoned me. I didn't move. You moved. You went over to the world. You went over and put your trust in the Philistines. You went over and pledged allegiance to Achish. So let him be your rescue. God doesn't do that. Even though David was the one who had gotten himself into this mess where there are no good options, God intervened and did so in a really unlikely weird way where he just turned the attention of these Philistine commanders to the fact that David probably shouldn't be here and even at David's protest, whether it was real or feigned, David is removed. And maybe he doesn't even see it at the time, but later he says, wow, that was God getting me out of an impossible situation. Praise God. I did not deserve that. And do you notice how God saved David? It's the same way that God almost always saves us, and that is he uses a setback, or what looks like a setback. He closes a door. Consider David's vantage point. David is hoping to go into battle and survive. And again, we can debate exactly how. Is he going to betray Achish or whatever? But he thinks the way forward is going to be him fighting. And God removes that. He shuts that option on David. And David is like, what the heck, God? Like, what? That was the, I didn't even know the way out, but if there was going to be a way out, that would be it. And now he's finding himself walking in the other direction, away from the battle. That's a big setback from David's point of view. It's a setback that all of us have a touch point with because it's a setback of not getting something that we want not getting something that we really hoped for, not taking hold of an opportunity that we are absolutely sure we needed in order to advance our life and take hold of a good life. It's a setback where we have an opportunity that we're waiting to open and it doesn't open to us. But from a, like our perspective, it should. There's no reason why this shouldn't be available to me. Maybe it's a romantic relationship that doesn't come to fruition. It's a loss when you expected a win. 
David experiences this massive setback. And we don't know how long it is before he can see it, but it's actually God's providential deliverance, saving David from self-destruction. So I ask myself, how do I respond when those kind of setbacks and disappointments happen in my life? And as much as I wish I could say this wasn't the case, more often than I'd care to admit, I harden my own heart and I think, is God really good? Like, why is he keeping this from me? It's something really good. I've worked hard for this. This is a good thing. I, I, I want to get married. I want this to work out. I want, I want this opportunity. I want this prosperity. I want this success. I, maybe I even want it to glorify God. Why isn't he opening it up? Why is he shutting it down? That's seeing setbacks through the eyes of doubt and a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is. When we are in a healthier and more faith-filled place, we can see setbacks through the eyes of faith and we trust God's goodness. And sometimes, even before the pieces have come together, we can say, huh, I wonder if God is saving me from a path that looks like it would prosper me, but would actually lead to my destruction. I don't know, but that's often or sometimes the way God works. I'm going to trust that. And I I realize responding to to setbacks like that is not easy, especially um, if you, like me, often have a very crystal clear picture of how your life is supposed to look or how this dimension of your life is supposed to look. But that is the call of surrender that we have as Christians. It's the call to surrender to him. Our prayer is not, Hey, God, my will be done. It's God, this is what I want. This is what I think would be an amazing blessing. These are the desires of my heart, but not my will, yours be done. If these things are going to enhance my life and and my relationship with you, bring it, God. Awesome. I think they would, but if one or two or all of them don't, your will be done. Shut it down. Take it away. It's not wrong for us to desire to flourish and to prosper, but we need to recognize that we often underestimate our own capacity to move into patterns of self-destruction in the pursuit of good things. And so we should be open as hard as it is and as much faith as it takes to say, God, this is what I want, this is what I think would be good, but if it's not God, I give you permission to send a setback into my life, to stop this, to delay it, to block it, to turn me in a different direction because I'm trusting that if this isn't actually going to advance your purposes in my life, I don't want it. And I hope you see how this larger pattern of God saving us out of an impossible situation through what looks like a monumental setback connects with Jesus and the cross. Because that is what God is doing through the cross. It's the ultimate apparent setback. Anybody looking at Jesus hanging, beaten, tortured, dying on the cross, bleeding out and slowly suffocating is not thinking, 
God's purposes are coming true. This is going to be amazing. Our faith has never been stronger. They're thinking, oh, it's over. It's over. It looks like the end of hope. It looks like the end of the promises of God. But that setback, that disappointment for those early believers, that loss actually facilitated capital S salvation, eternal life. Victory over sin and death is made available to all who turn to Christ. Everybody who has painted themselves into a corner spiritually where they can't get themselves out. They can't get themselves out through religious work or through uh, moral uh, reformation. They can't just kind of pull themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps. They are damned if they do, damned if they don't. And God could have said to all of us in that situation, hey, you made that bed. I didn't move, you moved. You, go ahead, pull yourself up out of the pit. But see, that's not God's heart. We see in our own life, in this, in this moment in David's life, this, um, this beautiful gospel truth that even when we didn't deserve rescue, even when we were the ones who messed it all up, God is, is super rich in mercy. And his grace breaks through. And he saves us completely. Doesn't help us save ourselves. He gets David out of there through no cooperation with David. David can't claim any part of this rescue. And we can't claim any of the rescue that Jesus has secured for us. God owes us nothing. God owes me nothing. We were the ones that abandoned God. We were the ones that hardened our hearts from God. We got ourselves into this mess, but God still intervened. And God provided the most unlikely path of salvation and victory a bloody, torturous, humiliating road to the cross that opens up a path for anyone, not based on how good you are, or ethnicity, or uh, social class, or economic class, but to anyone who would genuinely humble themselves and say, "I, I need rescue. I need rescue in my life. Through the cross, God saves us from self destruction. Let's pray. God, as we prepare for this time of communion, may it hit differently in our hearts. May the story in David's life, this juncture where all seemed lost from his point of view and there's this barrier of moving forward and he's sent back and it looks like a, a reversal that is, and it looks like a regression. It looks like he's going in the opposite direction, but it's actually your means of saving him. And until that resurrection Sunday, Crucifixion Friday looks like a massive setback. But thank you, in your grace, you didn't leave us to our own devices, that you didn't deal with us according to how our sins deserved. But you came and you took the condemnation, you took the judgment, and then extended to us the blessings of your faithfulness so that we could be saved, not through works, not through our own efforts, but by trusting in you, by grace, through faith, And so God, for as many as are present this morning who have trusted in you, may we come forward and celebrate this communion together.